0: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast. Back to full. Red Sox fans have longed to hear. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Part of the Over the Monster Network. Swinging a high deep drive the right field. That one's to the right. Hunter on the move, racing back. It's over his head. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. Presented by SB Nation. It hasn't happened. Apparently Park for 95 years. The Red Sox. Champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. Here comes a one-two pitch. Yes! And, the win the World and featuring Keaton DeRocher. Strikeouts in 2017 for Chris Sale. An absolute strikeout machine. 13 tonight against the Baltimore Orioles. They're all loaded. High fly ball, deep in the left center field. Way it, back there. it carries. And that ball is gone! The Red Sox walk it off in style. That's how it's done. The X Man strikes. Fly ball to deep left center field. Devers has hit it out. The rookie takes Chapman the other way to tie the game.
1: Welcome back to the Over the Monster podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I'm joined by Matt Collins of Over the Monster for episode 157. Matt, how are you?
2: Uh, hanging in there. How you doing?
1: I'm doing okay. I'm, uh, I'm definitely getting a little bit tired of living this quarantine life. Um, got out to the park today, which was kind of cool, um, so... I'm trying to like do little things to keep myself feeling normal. It was really weird. I was driving in the end of my street today and um, I hadn't been out in a little while and there were a bunch of cars, like I was waiting for cars so I could pull out and I was like, huh, I haven't seen this much traffic in probably a month. So it was, it was kind of cool to feel normal for like five minutes. Yeah.
2: Although there probably shouldn't be that many people
1: outside. No, probably not. I think people are getting frustrated with like not doing anything. So. But yeah, um, okay, so today, uh, for this edition of the show, Matt and I thought we would bring you an interesting discussion on the best homegrown pitching outcomes of the John Henry era. There's been a lot made of how the Red Sox aren't very good at pitcher development, so we decided that, you know, why not kind of take a look at it and see where they've actually succeeded. Um, John Henry bought the team in 2002, so all the guys that we're going to be talking about debuted after that. Um, and uh, we're even going to kind of mention some guys that were were moved for other pieces towards the end of this as well. And then, as usual, we're going to answer your listener questions. Um, so let's get right into it, Matt. We both made our top tens, and they were very similar. And for our number one choice, we both had John Lester. Um, that was like the biggest no-brainer of this list, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, to me, the whole top. I guess was I didn't really think too much about it but yeah John Lester was obviously I mean I don't really know how much discussion this even really merits I mean you talked about how bad they've been John Lester is really the only true like fide success in this whole era in terms of starting pitching at least
1: yeah he is um and I think John Lester is also kind of an interesting guy because Not only has his time with the Red Sox been good, but obviously he's been pretty good with the Cubs, and he's been an absolute postseason warrior um, throughout his entire career as well. Um, I was looking at his stats, and I was using the new Fantrax tool that kind of allows you to um, group together a bunch of years and aggregate some year totals. And for the Red Sox, from 2008 to 2011, he had a 3.33 ERA, struck out almost nine batters um, per nine. He was at 8.68. He threw 813 innings over that time. He was really, really good for that stretch.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was... I mean, I think you could extend that... Certainly extend that further, too. I mean, 2012 was, like, the hiccup year. Um, But, I mean, pretty much from 2008 through... The time he got traded, halfway through 2014. I mean, he was pretty much lights out except for that 2012 season and i mean i think anybody who watched baseball 2012 knows the i don't know how much you can count for anybody for that season i mean that season was just a disaster
1: yes that was the bobby v year wasn't it
2: it sure was yeah so i mean that's and that was the (laughs) only year that he wasn't extremely good i mean the next 2013 we remember the postseason he kind of got off to a slow start there too I think mm. we enough his slow start. His numbers overall were, I mean, they were good, but they weren't like where they were the rest of his career. But um, I mean, that was just that one little hiccup. But other than that, he was pretty much dominant that whole time.
1: Yeah, those postseason numbers are insane. Thirty-four and two-thirds innings pitched um, with a one point five six ERA. That's that's no. as good as it gets, man.
2: Yeah, I mean, he was. That's legendary status for a World Series run.
1: Huh? Yeah. Oh, totally. And you know what? He. he He's also been really good in some other post-seasons as well. 2008, he had a 2.36 ERA during those playoffs. 2007, even though he only had nine innings, 1.93. And then um, also in the Cubs World Series run, he had a 2.02 ERA in 2016, over 35 and two-thirds innings pitch. So he's an absolute postseason monster.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think the two World Series runs, the um – 20 well 2007 i'm not counting but 2013 and uh 2016 i think we're on another level because um, i mean like 2008 he was out of his mind in the uh division series wasn't that great in the alcs mm-hmm. so just like the consistently series to series 2013 and 2016 were just insane
1: yeah, it's it's crazy that he's been able to do this consistently, too. Um, I agree with you. But the thing that's kind of interesting, too, is that even in the two years after that, where the Cubs made the the postseason in 2017 and 2018, he was still exceptional oh, he's in those. Too, yeah, yeah so, just not as
2: many innings, but yeah, he was, when he pitched, he was great, for
1: sure. Yeah, his, his, his lifetime postseason uh, marks are insane. It's 154 innings, 2.51 ERA.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's, like I said, he's the only true success starting pitcher-wise. Red Sox have been, I think, we'll get, I mean, we'll get into it, but I think the Red Sox have been underrated, not great, but underrated with developing relievers, but mm, you know, starting yeah. pitching, Lester's really the only guy.
1: Yeah, I would agree. Um, I, I want to talk just a little bit before we move on from Lester about what you think his chances are of hall of fame and i know you hate talking about the hall of fame but he's kind of making a little bit of a sneaky argument even though he's below a bunch of guys who are currently in the hall of fame um he's at like 46 um total fan war i think he'll probably add to that because he's still got a few years left to pitch Um, But it won't be substantially higher war than what he's got right now. But the thing that's crazy is the postseason stuff and all the accolades there. Do you think that postseason stuff gives him sort of that push that he needs?
2: I don't think so. Um, I think it'll be an interesting case. But, I mean, I figure he's got, what, at least three years left pitching. Yeah. And then another five years after that. Um, I don't know what the... Hall of fame electorates going to, I mean, I think postseason will obviously always be valued, but I don't know that Lester is going to be close enough regular season wise. Yeah, postseason will push him over. So I would say, I think he'll stick on the ballot for a few years. I don't think he's going to be a one and done, but uh, I don't think he's going to be, I don't think he ultimately makes it.
1: Yeah, I don't think so either. It's an interesting case, um, but I feel yeah, like he I didn't don't really think have so. a peak
2: either. I mean, you said the numbers that he was like really good in those numbers. But, I don't know, maybe I'm just not in tune enough with the league as a whole, but I feel like he was never really considered that guy, whether that was fair or not.
1: No, he wasn't. I mean, that's... I'm looking,
2: He Top five in the Cy Young three times, top ten another time. Um, Made a few all-star games. Yeah, I guess I I just never felt the perception of him was there. No,
1: I mean five All Star games in, in in three top five finishes is good. But it's just not it's not comparable to a lot of the Hall of Fame guys.
2: No. And he doesn't have like I don't like I don't I don't have Jack Morris' numbers in front of me, but Jack Morris is like the argument for him was always like best pitcher of the eighties or whatever and Lester will never have that. Right. For a good reason, obviously <laughs> he was never the best pitcher of a decade or anything like that. Neither was Morris, but nobody's ever said that about John Lester.
1: It is kind of an interesting argument, though, when you look at Jack Morris, because I kind of think he might be better than Jack Morris.
2: Yeah, but then you get into the weird. This is part of why I don't like the Hall of Fame. Like, just because one guy got in who shouldn't be, does that mean you're supposed to lower the standards going forward? Maybe there's right. an argument that you should, but I don't. I just don't think that that's a good way to look
1: at it. Yeah, I think it's all going to come down to how how they value those three World Series and that NLCS MVP, and you know and all the other accolades that he has.
2: I mean, he's Maybe he's a guy I mean he hasn't been he's been at least average by ERA every year of his career, except for that two thousand twelve season. Even last year he was he had a one hundred ERA plus. So I mean he's not like totally tailing off or anything. If he can be good for like another five years and add another ten war into his age forty season, I wouldn't bet on that happening, but it's not totally out of the right out of the realm of possibility.
1: Yeah, if he could add ten more war, I think this becomes a coin flip. He would
2: need to have like a five win season in there probably to do that, but like, and obviously twenty twenty, being what it is, yeah, that hurts anybody's case. That's like on that borderline. Like him.
1: I wonder if that gets factored into this at all.
2: I think it depends. (laughs) We have no idea how this ends. Yeah. Right. It's kind of hard to look at how things get affected.
1: One of the things that's definitely been underrated about John Lester, though, is his, has been his durability throughout his entire career. And I also think it's cool to mention that, you know, uh, in 2007, when he won that World Series with the Red Sox, he had, you know, shortly before that come off of the leukemia scare that he had before. Yeah. And then very shortly after winning the World Series, too, the next. Following year, uh, he throws his no-hitter with, with uh, Jason Veritek behind the plate. So he, he had a really kind of magical run in return from that health scare that he had.
2: And he's made at least 31 starts every year since 2008. That's unheard
1: of. Yeah, that's definitely am- among the best in the game in terms of durability for sure. All right, moving on here to our second-ranked um, pitcher for this list. Uh, We both had Jonathan Papelbon, and when I first made my first version of this list, I omitted him by accident. Um, But he is so clearly the second best player behind Lester on here that I was like, I couldn't believe that I did that.
2: Yeah, I don't think people... I I get the sense that people don't remember how good Jonathan Papelbon was. Um, Jonathan Papelbon was so... (laughs) unbelievable for five years when he first got called up um he was like mariano rivera was on a different planet Papelbon was as close as he could get to rivera like, oh easily was, I, and it's uh, i saw like a discussion of koji versus Papelbon, and it's so they're so different for per- personality wise and like ever in just about every way but and I know how good Koji was for that one year but Papelbon was like that dude for a half decade Like, I just, I can't Papelbon's the best Red Sox closer I've ever seen just if you factor in everything
1: Yeah, I mean, but, definitely peak right, like, sustained peak for Papelbon, I think you're absolutely right it's one of the best sustained peaks for a closer in even league history
2: one season, I mean, his 2006 season was bananas, he had a ERA really under one. In yeah. se- almost 70 innings. I mean, he was just... He was so good. And that it was a time when of
1: offense games. was pretty high, too, as well.
2: He, I mean, his ERA plus was 517.
1: Yeah, that's it's a crazy season right there. Yeah.
2: yeah, he was... So, I mean, I don't know. In, I mean, in terms of this list, it, I think I've always been higher on relievers than other people anyways, but there's just no question, dude guy that was as good as Papelbon was, and I say five years, but it was really his entire Red Sox career. He had that one, 2010 was like more good than great, but his whole time with the Red Sox is really out of this world.
1: Yeah, so he came up with the Red Sox in 05, wasn't the closer, he even started three games in 2005. He came up as a starter. He was supposed to go
2: back to being a starter, and then they just decided against that because he was so.
1: Yeah. And and so over that six year period, um, when he took over as the closer, essentially in 2006, 2011, he saved 219 games, which is by far and away the Red Sox record. He's got like nearly 100 more saves than the next best Red Sox closer of all time. And over that, he pitched 395 innings with a 10.8 Ks per nine with a 2.30 ERA over that time span. And he didn't walk anybody either. That was the crazy thing about Pap is, like, his walk rates were always crazy low too. So he was kind of, like, the best mix of both. He was striking everybody out. He wasn't walking anybody. And he was a complete psychopath on the mound in a good way.
2: Yeah, he didn't give up home runs either. I that was... um, for a guy throwing that many strikes, you would expect some more home runs. And he just, I mean, he was the total package, for sure. And yeah, he was a psychopath. And sometimes it was good. I mean, all closers are a little bit messed up in the head. Path of fun. Kind of let him get the best of him sometimes, but more of that came after he left than while he was with the Red Sox.
1: Do you remember when he tried to fight Bryce Harper when they were teammates? He choked him. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing.
2: I mean, it was more than trying to fight him. I mean, he put his hands around his neck. <laughs>
1: By all accounts, though, like he was a really good teammate and a really good guy, too. He, I've heard some stories about him, like really going out of his way to help people, um, during his time in Boston. So, I think he was probably for all his craziness, like one of the better guys to be around.
2: I don't know if I agree with that, but I don't really want to get into it.
1: <laughs> okay, so, um, Papa moving on. To our third guy, um, Matt, I know that this is the guy that you really love more than I do, so I'm going to kind of cede the floor to you and let you tell us why Clay Buckholtz, who we both had third, is the third best pitcher development story of this kind of generation of
2: players. Well, I mean, I don't think there's any, any debate that he's third. I mean, it's, there's a pretty clear tier here of the top three, I think, um. And, I mean, Buckles I know people don't like buckles and I sort of get it, but also I don't think people appreciate it. Buchholz was on pure talent and on, like, peak, he was better than Lester. Like, when Buckholz was at his best, he was better than Lester. Um, buckles the thing is he obviously wasn't always at his best, and that matters. That's why Lester is so clearly out of him. But uh, 2013, Clay Buckles before he got hurt, that first half of the season, was about as good as I've seen a Red Sox pitcher pitch in the last decade. Um, maybe not quite Pete Chris but he was I mean, he was the Cy Young favorite before he got hurt, um, which I forget when he got hurt. It was some point in June. but And then he came back in that World Series run, very clearly still injured, and gutted his way through, I don't remember how long the start was. It was either four or five innings. But it was absolutely incredible. It was four innings in the World Series, with one unearned run, where when he was throwing like eighty-five mile an hour fastballs, and the fact that people still like question his toughness and his will to like go out and compete like always really bothered me, especially considering that start that was just as gutsy as it gets. So um, I understand getting frustrated with the injuries, and that's why he's below Lester, but in terms of pure talent i mean that dude just dealt and i don't fault him like personally for getting hurt it it happens to pitchers
1: yeah and he's got you know much slighter build than than lester and things like that i don't know what happened behind the scenes and stuff like that whether or not it was like he didn't take care of himself or what contributed to it but guys just get hurt so yeah i don't think you can really knock him for that the thing that always stood out to me with him aside from his inconsistency, which I found maddening, but was how many pitches he threw, um, and he threw at kind of like an above-average level. You know, he had a really good fastball. He had a great cutter. He had a really nice changeup at times, a curveball that I thought was a really good pitch. I mean, he had kind of kind of everything.
2: Yeah, he was a kitchen sink guy for sure. I mean, he threw he threw everything, and he, when he was at his best, that's why he was so good because he would throw everything, and he would throw it whenever he counts didn't really matter to when he was at his last
1: yeah yeah totally i mean he's still kicking around right now he's still only 35 years old
2: he made uh 12 starts with the blue jays last year i think he signed with somebody for spring training i don't remember who
1: yeah you know in 2018 with the d-backs he had a 2.01 era
2: oh yeah oh uh, trust me i i know my clay (laughs) buckles (laughs) <laughs> he, wasn't as, he wasn't quite as good as the numbers uh, said. I watched a bunch of the starts, though. I mean, it was... That's Clay Buckles. Like, it's yeah. just as soon as you count him out, he comes back and he's just out of his mind. Um, let's see. He's... Oh, no, he's still a free agent. I could have sworn I saw that he signs this league.
1: Yeah, and, and it's worth mentioning, too, that these are both... Guys that the Red Sox drafted high in John Lester and Clay Buckholtz, um, and I think Pap yeah Pap wasn't as high. He was a fourth rounder, but I mean Lester was, was a fourth rounder. Pap was a fourth. Lester was a second rounder, 16th overall in the second round overall 57, um, and then Buckholtz was actually the highest draft pick out of those three guys. He was a 42nd overall um, first round supplemental pick. So, I mean, talent-wise, he was definitely kind of like a blue-chip guy.
2: Oh, I mean, he was always, like, a, yeah, he was, like, he, he's not a guy that came out of nowhere. No. I'm trying to see who, um, who they got that pick for.
1: The Buckholz pick? Yeah.
2: Pedro. I don't think I ever knew that. I probably Interesting. That, but I forgot about it.
1: Yeah. So the, that, that the came Crack-Cates. from the Mets?
2: Um. Yeah, that's what Pedro
1: went after. Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting.
2: Well, I that's not how the picks work though. Back
1: then, right? I don't think so. I think you just got you just got like a supplemental round pick. You didn't. It the didn't Sox, come out of the Mets' cachet. The Red Sox think. had so
2: many of those picks that year. Compensation yeah. picks.
1: Changing the right. structure of the game has really hurt the Red Sox in terms of like how those picks work terms of free agents leaving and stuff like that
2: that's why they did
1: it yeah definitely feeling it all right let's talk about another guy who we both had fourth here um also a high pick by the red sox he was drafted in 2006 with the second uh second rounder he was 71st overall that's justin masterson who we both had fourth now, Masterson was a huge dude, and he was also one of the top prospects for the Red Sox, one of these guys that kind of had a lot of helium when he was coming up. Six foot six, 250, sinker baller guy, generated a ton of ground balls. I mean, throughout his time in the minor leagues and in the major leagues, he was always above a 50% ground ball rate guy. Came up with the Sox in 2008, um, had pitched 88 uh, innings, That year, kind of a mix of relief and um, starting. Had a 3.16 ERA. um, And then the next year in 2009, he pitched about half the year with the Red Sox before he was traded to the Indians. And that's kind of where his career really started to take off, was with the Indians.
2: Yeah, Masterson always frustrated me, even with the Indians. He had a couple of good seasons in there, but it just always felt like he should have been. He just couldn't throw strikes when he needed to. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I sort of feel like maybe he should have been a reliever, I think. But, I mean, I think the Indians got some good years out of him, but I think just for him in terms of being, like, dominant instead of just being kind of a back-end solid starter for a few years, I think he could have been a pretty good reliever.
1: Yeah, he came around at kind of a weird time. You know, he he came around as... I think baseball was starting to get away from ground ballers like him. You know, the transition of guys starting to throw more high fastballs and, and getting away from the sinker kind of started as he started getting really good because he had his best season in 2011, his second best season in 2013, and then pretty soon after that, 2014, 2015. I mean, he was hammered right out of the game.
2: Did he get hurt?
1: I think he did get hurt.
2: Yeah, I think injuries to play played. Yeah, I mean, like like I was saying before, like the top three is just such a clear tier to me. Masterson is just clearly, to me, not in the class of the other guys.
1: Yeah, his velo fell off a complete cliff after 2013. He went from averaging nearly 92 on his fastball to 88, uh, high 88, so basically uh, 89, and then the following year, 80 87.4. So something was think- going on.
2: I don't remember what happened. He
0: definitely got hurt. I don't even know. I'm trying to see if I can find a Wikipedia. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at Chabacasino.com. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: But it was interesting that he ended up coming back to the Red Sox in 2015. I completely forgot that that happened.
2: I did too. Twenty fifteen is another one of those years that I've kind of blocked out of my memory.
1: Yeah, that was the last place here, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah.
2: He threw an immaculate inning against the Red Sox too. I definitely don't remember that.
1: No, I don't remember that either.
2: Twenty on opening day.
1: Hmm.
2: Oh no, it wasn't on opening day. It's on June second,
1: twenty fourteen. Oh man, you, you know before. <laughs> We moved on to Lester a little too quick. I mean, uh, to Masterson a little too quick. Before we we stopped talking about Buckholz, we never talked about the fact that Buckholz threw a no hitter in his second ever start in the big I leagues.
2: we Will never forget that night.
1: That was crazy.
2: That was, yeah, that was one of. Uh, when was that? Twenty? That was two thousand seven, right?
1: 2007 i remember i was driving in my car listening to the game when it was happening and i literally pulled my car over to the side of the road to listen to like the last three or four outs of the game it was wild
2: that was like when i first started like drinking and partying in high school and i very much remember that night that was a very fun night
1: (laughs) that's awesome yeah um Man, you you know what's crazy? So I've been doing some research on Jason Veritek um, because I have got an article coming out on Jason Veritek on uh, Tuesday, and um, almost all of Jason Veritek's no hitters with guys have come with guys that he didn't really have that much familiarity with. You know, like he caught Buckholtz's no hitter. And his second start ever with them, and then Nomo's no hitter that he caught with him um, his was his first start with Jason Veritek. Obviously, he'd caught him in spring training, but like, that, yeah. you know, that's it's still really impressive to me.
2: For sure, I think it's impressive for the pitchers too. Obviously.
1: All right, so for our fifth, um, I believe this is where we started to break off a little bit. Yep, this is where things get weird for us. So my fifth selection was Brandon Workman, and your fifth selection was Daniel Bard. I'm going to let you go first. Why Why'd you have Bard 5 here?
2: Yeah, so I was kind of just thinking about peak at this point. Um, I mean, I was telling you before we record, like this next tier of like four pitchers, I think, are all pretty close. But Bard, like, peak Daniel Bard was something special. Um, And it doesn't, like, I've looked back at his numbers many times, and they don't, the numbers don't look as good as I remember him being. Like, there was just something about the way he pitched that was absolutely unfair. Like, his ERAs don't really do it justice, I don't think. But, I mean, that guy was – he was – him and Papabon in the back of that bullpen was something special. And he was much better than any of the other people will name the rest of this list at their best. Not even close.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Um, the year that obviously stands out is that 2010 year when it felt like they were throwing him all the time in all high leverage team. situations.
2: Yeah, he was. Yeah, it was just – it was as probably – him and Andrew Miller, are, uh, those are probably the two most fun I've ever had, watching relievers, just in terms of pure domination.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was great, um, I have to say. And I think that in 2011, I might have even thought he was a little bit better, even though he had a worse ERA um, than he was in, in 2010, just because he seemed like he had a little bit more control that year in terms of being able to put the ball where he wanted to. I mean, those those two years taken together. Really, dominant. the
2: 2009 too. Yeah, when he first he, came up, he, that was—I mean, he was—that was when he was striking out. He struck out more batters than ever that year. Um, I, yeah, he just got destroyed by going to the rotation, obviously. And I think there's probably more to it than that.
1: Um, no, he got destroyed also, by Bobby V's presence.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I,
1: I don't like think that. it helped his confidence.
2: I think there was a lot going on with that. He's trying to make a comeback right.
1: Yeah, and he's not that old. I mean, what? He's thirty
2: four. Thirty four. Yeah, I mean, it all fell off a cliff very quickly. He was coaching last year.
1: Interesting. Where?
2: Uh, I believe he was with the Diamondbacks. I'm coming up there, though. He was I remember him
1: being taller than he was. He's. It says he was six four. For some reason, I thought he was like six six when he was pitching with the Red Sox.
2: Six four is huge.
1: I mean, it's big, but like for a pitcher, you know, it's pretty big. <laughs> I thought he was more of a giant.
2: I feel like you're underrating how tall six four is.
1: Well it's kind of funny because almost all of the guys on this <laughs> this list that the Red Sox uh had success with aside from Buckholtz, were like pretty big dudes. A lot of them anyway that we're gonna talk about.
2: I guess Lester's taller than I thought he was.
1: How big is Lester?
2: He's also six four. Yeah,
1: I knew That's he was a horse. I am right.
2: Those lists are all listed measurements are correct. Everybody <laughs> knows that.
1: Well, my guy that I picked was Brandon Workman, um, 6'5", huge, huge dude. Um, one of the most intimidating presences on the Red Sox, in my opinion. Um, for me, I think why Workman is the clear choice for me after those guys is because, um, you know, the obviously Papelbon is the best reliever here because he was an absolutely dominant closer, and the other three had really good years as starting pitchers. But this is sort of the best short-lived career as a reliever, and it's still going right now, and it's still getting better. Um, If we look at his his numbers with the Red Sox when he's really focused on being a reliever, meaning years that he didn't make any starts, because he made a ton of starts. He made 15 of them in 2014 before he really transitioned to being a full-time reliever. Um, and we know he was a great reliever in the postseason. Uh, in 2013, he actually pitched 8.2 innings with a zero ERA in the postseason. But since then, since then, he's um, he's been dominant. I mean, he had a 3.18 ERA in 2017, 3.27 in 2018. And then last year, he was bananas with a 1.88 in 16 saves. Um, when he came over and, and locked in as the closer, he was dominant. Absolutely dominant in every sense of the word that you can, you know, say. And he stopped the walking guys as well at the same rate that he was. He didn't give up any home runs last year. He had 10 wins out of relief, which is kind of crazy, too. Um, I just think that Workman has that kind of it factor for um, relievers where he, he knows how to bear down and he throws some pretty good pitches and. I don't know. I just really enjoy watching Workman pitch right now. I think he's kind of dialed in and figured out what works for him.
2: Yeah, I don't really disagree. I just don't really buy it either. I've never really bought it. And at this point, it's probably a me problem. But I still just, I don't know. Like last year, was, I was blown away by the curveball fastball thing i've written about it a hundred times i think it's my favorite thing about any player on the red sox just the way those two pitches work off each other and the fact that his fastball is one of the most effective in baseball last year despite being like 92 miles an hour and not i mean it's not a straight straight arrow but it doesn't have any sort of significant movement um so the fact that he makes that work is like really impressive but i just I still don't buy it. I I feel like he's more good than great. It's just the sense that I get. Like I said, I think it's more of a me problem than anything at this point. But just like last year, as good as he was, he just wasn't that good. He wasn't nearly as good as the ERA. Like, I'm not going to say it was all luck. But at the same time, the guy walked six batters per nine innings, and he gave up one home run at the time when everybody was hitting home runs on every other swing. I mean, that's just... You need luck for that to happen. He just wasn't as good as the numbers say he was last year.
1: Well, I think there's there's a couple things, right? So I, I agree with you that um, from a K to walk percentage, he definitely was not K to walk rate. He definitely was not. I mean, in the first half he had a one point nine six K K to walk rate, which is not what you want. Second half it was two point eight eight, which is definitely better. Um, but the thing that kind of stands out to me is, like, it didn't seem like anybody really hit him hard because all year, 107 batting average against in the first half, 144 in the second half. Kind of, he's difficult to square up for a lot of guys. in in high leverage situations, he really bore down.
2: Yeah, I just, I don't know how much that carries over going forward. I guess that kind of clouds my judgment. I shouldn't pro- It's hard for me to think about the current guys in terms of only the past, just because that's just not. Think about them normally, which isn't how this exercise is supposed to work. But I'm only human,
1: it's so I think of workmen. Let me let me ask you if if I give you these numbers together from 2017 to 2019, he's 17 and three, 152 innings pitched, 2.59 ERA.
2: Yeah, but I mean, it's a reliever. I don't really care that much about ERA without the rest of the context. And I look at a guy who's had home run issues this entire career and then last year just didn't and you throw in the walk issues I don't know like I like I said I think the next four guys including Danny Barth that I'm going to talk about they're all pretty much the same to me so I don't really want to like act like I'm offended by Workman being in the spot I'm <laughs> certainly not it's just not where I'd have him
1: yeah and, and, and the reason why I have him is because I just tend to value guys who can close games a little bit higher than guys who Either don't close games or can't close games or, for whatever reason, aren't trusted in that role. Um, so, yeah. All right, let's go down to number six. We both had the exact same guy for number six. We both settled on Junichi Um Talk to me about Taz. Why is Taz a good fit for the sixth spot here?
2: Um. Well, Tazawa is maybe the most underappreciated player since I started covering the Red Sox. Sozawa was so good for, like, three-ish years. Um, he was about as good as it got in terms of controlling the strike zone. And I just absolutely love watching a pitcher control the strike zone like him. Uh, and that means striking guys out and uh, and not issuing walks. He got hit a little hard sometimes, which is why he was never, like, super elite. Man, he just never put anybody on for free, and it was he. And I also just like personally, he was one of the big reasons why people started paying attention to me, because, because I wouldn't shut up about Junichi Tsuji. So just <laughs> on a personal level, I've always appreciated him. Uh, but I mean, like I said, I just if I did this list again, I might even have Buff Bard. Like he was, he was so good.
1: Well, I love this combo of pitches, too. He was uh, similar to Jonathan Papelbon with what he threw. He threw fastball, a splitter. Uh, he threw a curveball. Jonathan Papelbon had a slider instead. But, I mean, he, he threw three really quality pitches in pretty much any count and was able to command all of them. That time that you were talking about from 2012 to 2014 for him, he went 175 innings pitched, uh, walked less than two guys per nine, struck out more than nine per nine, Um, Struck out more than a batter per nine, I should say, and 2.62 ERA. And that's not even including the fact that during the postseason um, in that 2013 run, he had a 1.23 ERA over that span too and basically didn't walk anybody. He walked even fewer than he did during the regular season. So the dude was electric when it counted too.
2: Yeah, he was always kind of overshadowed by Koji, which, I mean, to be fair, obviously, (laughs) Koji was amazing and then like earlier he was overshadowed by andrew miller too it always felt like there was somebody else in front of him that kind of took that shine away yeah but he was he was always like right there as that really underrated and just really steady number two
1: yeah i agree um i love taz the only guy who um was kind of similar in the role that we couldn't talk about because it was he wasn't really developed with the Red Sox, who I liked more than Taz in that role okay was Jima. Okajima. I just I loved Okajima. is one of my all-time favorite players, um, I mean, and I think for a lot of the lot of the reasons like why you talked about why you like Taz is why I liked Okajima. I just thought he was so clutch. For the so other long. thing
2: about um, Tazawa, have you ever had a Haichu chew candy? Japanese
1: candy. I don't know. Maybe
2: very good, um, very good Japanese like chewy candy. They said I have a Vietnamese uh, coffee shop right next to me that sells them. But nice. So Tozawa brought them to the Red Sox clubhouse when he was like playing with the Red Sox, and everybody loved them. <laughs> and so when team when players started going to new teams. They would start bringing them, and they suddenly became like quietly the most popular food, one of the most popular food in major clubhouses. Huh. And uh, yeah, so he bought, he owns a uh, high chew factory in America now.
1: Holy crap.
2: It's another reason yeah. to love
1: These things have a real cult following. I'm looking at there, you can buy they're a high chew so hoodie sweatshirt.
2: They're <laughs> so good. I get them anytime I go to get a coffee. Because they, oh. they have them like right next to the cash register at this coffee shop. I always grab a bag
1: Okay. I'm definitely going to have to check go. out these high yeah, cheese. go to
2: like – they have them at like Asian grocery stores too. I'm sure you can find them there.
1: Word. All right. Moving on to the next guy. Um, for us, for our number seven, we both had the same guy as well. That's Matt Barnes. Um, Matt, I had a little bit of trouble ranking Matt Barnes because – I feel like Matt Barnes is better than his numbers. He's kind of the opposite of workman for me. Um, and I get really frustrated with Matt Barnes because he, he also like workman walks too many guys. He gives up way too many home runs, but the stuff is filthy.
2: Hey, on, in terms of pure talent, um, Barnes is right behind Bard on this list for me. It's not particularly close. Um, In moving forward, I think, like I was saying, I can't really think of the current players without kind of projecting them forward a little bit. I don't think there's any question that Barnes is the best reliever on the Red Sox right now. Um, It just kind of all depends on what you look at. And, I mean, if you look at DRA, which I still think is the best pitching metric out there, Barnes is legitimately one of the top, like, 10 to 15 relievers in baseball. I don't know that I would go that far, but I think that just speaks to how frustrating he is for sure but how talented he is and how i still think he can be a developmental success story because i still think he can be one of the best relievers of baseball for a stretch and he hasn't he's been durable um he's done it in the postseason i think he's i think his contributions in 2018 in that postseason run have been thoroughly underrated um Looking back, he was an absolute monster. He was one of two relievers, like two or three real relievers that were trusted in that run, and he did mm-hmm. extremely well when they needed him to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I love Matt Barnes. I think the stuff is there, it's just a matter of getting it consistent. Which, whether or not he can do it is obviously still a question, but as a former top prospect, I think he's done fairly well.
1: Yeah, he's definitely a, a good development success story. I mean, when Matt Barnes was coming up, he was thought to be a starter. Um, he was and, one of the killer beats. Yeah, um, exactly. And you know, when he came up, it, it was clear that he probably didn't have what it took to be a starter.
2: It was it uh, was clear before he came up that he was not.
1: But, I mean, he's got some really good offerings. I I love his curveball. I mean, I think he's got an underrated fastball. I think he falls in love with it a little bit at times, and I think that contributes to some of these home run numbers. But, by and large, he's given the Red Sox since 2016 four seasons in a row with 60-plus, you know, averaging like 65-plus innings pitched um, over that time span, striking out a ton of guys. But the, the thing that just continues to frustrate me is, the uh, men on base with him it's it comes back to kill him because it's always coupled with the home run problems
2: yeah well, it's the thing with barnes is like it's always not to excuse it because this is you can't just like do it doesn't matter if they're spaced out or not but barnes's struggles always come within the same period of time it's not like he'll have like a couple bad outings a month it's like he'll have like four really good months and then he'll have six weeks where he's just unusable so I think that's kind of why I get the sense that his the perception of his talent among fans isn't quite where it should be. Because we see him, it's not just once in a while. It's when he's bad, he's bad. And when he's good, he's good.
1: Yeah, last year, uh, June, 9.69 ERA.
2: They killed him early last year. They absolutely <laughs> yeah. destroyed him. I do not hold anything against him. Last year, he pitched like every single day for the first six weeks of the season.
1: Oh, he was completely misused. Uh, it was in, uh, in, in, the, in the whole June.
2: bullpen was, but yeah, it was. They had no, they had no idea what they were doing with the bullpen. Yeah, through June first, uh, the team had played fifty-eight games, and he had pitched in twenty-three of them. I mean, it was just, it was totally unsustainable, and it was very clear that it I mean, was going to go downhill very quickly.
1: I remember we were podcasting every day with each other during that time period, and we were getting super frustrated because they used him in every single high leverage situation. So it wasn't just like some of those twenty three appearances. Oh yeah, they were were, all
2: stress. Yeah, exactly. Best hitters on whoever, whatever team they were playing.
1: Yeah, he. He You know, he's the one
2: for the beginning of that season. He was doing very well in those in a very difficult role. And then it just, the stress in it was just
1: caught up. With them. For sure, yeah. I think uh, he definitely did really well for that beginning part. I think uh, it would catch up to anybody. I don't, oh, I, th- sure. I think there was a stat actually last year and I'm blanking on it, but I'm going to kind of reference what I thought it was. I'm pretty sure that he was second only to Josh Hader in terms of amount that he was used in those high leverage fireman type
2: roles. Uh, probably something with win probability added something like that. I was something like that, yeah. Measuring it. I don't remember anything specific. But, um, yeah, I mean, everybody knows I love Matt Barnes. Just one last Matt Barnes step uh, by going back to DRA. Um, adjusted for park values, Matt Barnes' DRA minuses have been 70, 49, and 56 in the last three years, which is just out of this world, especially those last two. I mean, those last two, if you... Use DRA's gospel, which I don't think anybody does, and I certainly don't. But I mean, that would make him a top three reliever in baseball. Bye he's
1: definitely attention. one of those guys that I think everybody is paying attention to, even in fantasy circles, because you roster him because he's going to strike out a hundred guys a year.
2: See, I don't think that's... I mean, I fantasy, I'm sure it is. I'm not really in tune with fantasy, but baseball writers at large nationally, uh, Matt Barnes, nobody pays attention to Matt Barnes. That I don't think sounds him non-fantasy
1: writers. yeah i would agree i would agree with that i think i think that's fair all right um number eight on this list i had manny del carmen you had brandon workman um i guess i will start because we've talked about, yeah, we del, talk about uh, workman a little bit um with manny del carmen i guess the thing about him was that I didn't realize how many really solid years Del Carmen had with the Sox. I mean, he had a bunch of years where he was one of the most important relievers on the team.
2: Yeah, I don't remember Manny. Del Carmen's career is something that I've learned in the last couple of hours. Um, He was much better than I remembered him being. And I guess I didn't watch baseball in the same way at this point in my life. So it was sort of more on the periphery. I guess I just don't. I probably don't have the um, respect for Manny Del Carmen that I should. Man, he had a 5.06 ERA in 2006, and that was a 94 ERA plus. That is wild. Hmm. 5.06 ERA was almost league average.
1: That's wild.
2: Just, I'm just getting distracted now, but yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's crazy. Um, I think the the two years that really kind of made me put him on the list and I do remember him from these situations because I'm a little bit older than you, so these were kind of more of my formative. Oh, years. I certainly wasn't. Young.
2: I was 16 in 2007. It was it wasn't a matter of being young. It was uh, what I was talking about earlier about starting so party. Okay. My memory of those years. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but like 0607. Um those two years combined, he threw 118 innings with a 2.81 07, 08. 2. ERA. 0708, yeah. yeah. 0708. Um and I mean he even had some saves there. He had a lot of high leverage innings that he pitched during those times. So Manny Del Carmen was just one of those guys that I trusted. He was sort of that Junichi Tazawa, Hideki Okajima, not quite as good as those guys, but that same type of um, guy who they would go to not to close out games, but you know, to be that seventh, eighth inning, sometimes sixth if they got in trouble. Um, he was kind of used in all those situations. And you know, thing, the thing that was cool about Manny was he was pretty steady. He didn't really walk that many guys when he was good. I mean, for a three year stretch, his his walks per nine were right around three, taking over three years. So um, a little bit higher than that, but he didn't walk anybody. He had a good fastball. I, I liked El Carmen, he was a good guy. And he he's he's actually not bad on the radio or on the uh, TV. On
2: TV, I, I don't know. He's only he only does pregame stuff, right? Has he ever been in the booth?
1: I don't think he's been in the booth. I think he's I don't only watch, pregame.
2: I, yeah, I don't watch the shows, but um, he's from Boston, right? Yeah, he's from Boston. Is he? Um, yeah, that's <laughs> the biggest thing I remember from, about Manny Del Carmen. Every because I used to listen. That was I used I listened to a ton of talk radio at that time. They always talked about how he's from Boston, but um, he kind of embodied that 2017 because nobody appreciates how good that team was either. And he was just kind of like, he was awesome and he was just kind of a dude. That team was so loaded. I think he kind of just got lost. In it.
1: Yeah. That team was filthy loaded. I I don't know why that team doesn't get as much love because I don't so know if you a think
2: story around it.
1: Yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. I mean, but
2: 2004, like 2004, obviously two, you know why 2013 had the marathon. 2018 yeah. even had. I mean, they were.
1: They were a wagon.
2: They were. Too, they. I. I mean, depending on how you feel about the science stealing stuff, I think there's an argument for 2007 being above them. But they didn't win as many games. Yeah, 2008 was just. I mean, 108 wins, or whatever it was. It's hard to beat that. So I mean, 2007 just gets lost in the shuffle. But that was. That was my favorite World Series team. That was a very – that was a time in my personal life. That month of October was a very strange time for me in my life, and that Red Sox team was very important to me.
1: Yeah, I don't – I think for forever for me, 04 is going to be my favorite. But I totally get that, you know, there are different things that attract people to it. I think the run I paid the most attention to outside of 04 was – I mean, I pay attention to all of them, but I think covering the team – to the degree that I was in 2018, made that special, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I, I get it. Um, Del Carmen, though, you were talking about him being local. 2000 draft, first draftee from a Boston public high school in 34 years. Pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Good, for,
1: good outcome for a cold weather guy from Hyde it's Park.
2: No, uh, it's not Carlos Pena.
1: But... Yeah, Placata, right? That's his thing.
2: Oh, yeah, let me know. He went to my high school. So oh. Not in time, obviously. But yeah, he's, uh, Haverhill. he's a hilly.
1: Um, does he it bother you when people call it Haverhill?
2: Uh, no. I, it's, a stupid, it's, a, it's a stupid city name, so I get it. And I'm not from, like, I mean, it's not Worcester or Peabody or anything, so I can't really complain.
1: Yeah, Worcester is constantly butchered. Um, all right, um, so number nine, uh, I had Bard, you had Manny Del Carmen. Um, we've talked about both of those guys. Any any closing thoughts on either of those two? Nope. Okay, moving on to number 10, we both had Felix Dubront. What do you remember about Felix Dubron? Uh,
2: <laughs> I am going to be the only person who ever says this. For whatever reason... The thing I remember about Felix DuBron is that they got – I'm double-checking this to make sure that I got the uh, – they got Marco Hernandez for him as a player to be needed later. Why yep. that's the thing that I remember, I don't know, but that is what I remember the most about Felix DuBron.
1: That is also completely the thing that I remember about it him It makes no well.
2: sense. It's not that yeah. Marco Hernandez is that good. But I mean, Felix DuBron was solid. He was okay.
1: Do you remember that in 2013 he pitched seven innings in the postseason with a one ERA?
2: I remember him being a big part of that roster, for sure. I came down to uh, him and Brian Johnson, and they're very similar to me.
1: I am glad they went with Dubront. He obviously has better stuff. Dubront? Yeah.
2: Yeah, Johnson is... I've always admired Johnson's ability to go back and forth. I think it's a very underrated quality for a pitcher. That doesn't get discussed enough, and I think that him and... Active Velasquez is doing that in 2018 was a very big part of that run. But, yeah, I mean, at this point, you're talking about quality pitchers, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dubrant is um, hes kind of an interesting guy because he's a guy that I don't know. I don't know how many teams. If we did this for, like, all the teams in the league over this stretch, I'm not sure how many teams Dubrant would actually make because
2: – My guess would be 10.
1: Yeah, it would be low, right? I mean, he's a guy who has 3.8 war for his career, really didn't have too much.
2: below level in baseball reference.
1: He had some pretty bad years. I mean, his last two years, 2014, 2015, were really bad. Um, and when he was starting for the Red Sox in 2012, 2013, uh, he was kind of middle of the pack. He
2: was baseball reference award. Oh, interesting. Point. 0.1. one. But.
1: And then he was a little bit above in twenty
2: thirteen. 0.7 in twenty thirteen, possibly Hmm. And then minus. Whoa. Minus. Uh. One point two. Wins above replacement in fifty nine in a third inning. So in twenty fourteen, with the Red Sox, that's almost impressive.
1: Wow, FanGraphs doesn't penalize them quite that bad because they're fit based. They have them minus point oh two.
2: I never look at pitcher war. Some of this is kind of blowing my mind.
1: Yeah, I don't know how much i i i have like I have some serious problems with pitcher war versus hitter war. It makes less sense to me. I don't like any of
2: them. But... Um, I look at it as like a start.
1: But overall, I mean, what this tells us about the Red Sox is that they haven't been despicable at developing pitching. They've been pretty bad at developing starters, especially because when we look at this list, I mean, M- Masterson didn't even really start long for the Red Sox before he was traded, and he wasn't traded for much. I can't remember what they gave up didn't for get,
2: um,
1: Victor Martinez, right? That was the
2: Victor Martinez trade. That was yeah, pretty damn but good we, trade.
1: Yeah, I guess it is. We ended up with Victor Martinez for, like, one season, though, right?
2: Victor, I think it was a season and a half. They, they got him for, like, the second half of Victor. that season. And he was there the following year as well.
1: Okay. Yeah, so I guess if you're talking about two years of Victor Martinez. It's a year and a Or months. a year and a half. Yeah.
2: They gave up. Well, Nick Hagedorn was a guy at that point, too. He never turned into anything. But he was a fairly well-regarded prospect in the system.
1: Mm, yeah. yeah. No, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this. V-Mart, when he came over in 09, he batted 336, 405, 507 for that team down the stretch in 09. And then he had a really good year. 122 WRC plus in 2010.
2: So he was awesome. <laughs> I actually like that trade
1: record. for both teams. Yeah, but, like, if you're looking at it just from a value standpoint, like, they've got two really solid years out of out of him, too. Cost-controlled. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, they were at different points. And the Red Sox, I mean, the Red Sox were super going for it at this point.
1: That's a good trade for the Sox.
2: Yeah, Victor Martinez was awesome. I loved Victor Martinez. Victor Martinez is now, uh, he was supposed to have a horse in the Kentucky Derby. Really? Yes. Ken Rosenthal. I believe so. Ken Roosevelt wrote a story about him. I think that's what he said.
1: I did not, not know he was see. horse in the Kentucky Derby, Rich.
2: Um, I don't think it's like only his horse.
1: Okay, but he's got he's a stake.
2: Yeah. Owned by... Yeah. It says he's the owner.
1: Huh. Every time I think of horses in the Derby now, I'm thinking of season three of Ozark. So I don't know if you've seen that yet, but
2: i couldn't get into
1: it it's not that good it's a show that's highly overrated
2: yeah it's kind of i watched the first like four or five episodes when it first came out when the first season came out and nobody was ever talking about it then all of a sudden out of nowhere in the last like two months i guess it's just the quarantine people looking for something to watch (laughs) everybody's like getting super into it which is cool i mean i'm not one to like i understand people like different things it's just i'm very surprised that it came out sort of came out of nowhere
1: yeah, I think people really want it to be better than it is. And I also think it's got a little bit of that streaming vibe. You know, when you watch something streaming, it seems better and it seems to make a little bit more sense than something that you're watching, like, episodically. Um, I think it's harder for a show to cover up flaws when you're watching it and thinking about it for a week in between episodes than when you're just, like, pounding it.
2: Yeah, I don't even remember why I didn't get into it. I keep saying I'm going to get gonna try it again and then I'm like, I'm definitely
1: uh, you know what I actually have been liking a little bit more than that. I just started it, but at least it's really weird, and I, I'm enjoying it. Is Altered Carbon? Have you seen that That's on what Netflix? Netflix do, right?
2: No. Yeah. I've been trying to. I haven't. We're going to a huge danger. Um, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't watched anything like new drama series. Um, I'm just not. I don't really feel like watch. I don't feel like devoting myself to something. I'm just not.
1: Yeah, here, yeah. I, I got a lot of downtime right now. so I,
2: well, I'm watching, I'm re watching shows. I'm re watching The Americans right now. Mm, and I'm watching a lot of uh, competition reality shows. I've been super into The Amazing Race for like three and a half weeks now. Interesting. It's not slowing down anytime soon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, good for you. I've been watching Ken Burns Baseball.
2: I saw you talking about that. I watched that way back in the
1: yeah, I'm about eight hours in right now. I I ten more hours. To to sleep oh, it's like background. immediate sleep if you put that on. You I have to watched, really fight. Uh, did you watch sailing.
2: Community? You watched that show?
1: I watched some of it when it was on. I haven't watched it like, they had a Ken since Burns it's been. Episode. Community, that was very good. Oh, Ken Burns interesting. Documentary. I know that it was part of... Um, they had an episode about how one of the main characters on the Mindy Project really liked Ken Burns, too. It's a it's a running uh, running joke, Ken Burns documentaries.
2: Yeah, well I mean he's probably the most famous. Well maybe not the most famous, but he's up there.
1: Yeah, it's like him and the guy, uh, David Attenborough. David who
2: Attenborough. does
1: all the nature shows.
2: He doesn't make those though, does he?
1: I think he's involved.
2: Oh, is Pretty he? sure I always thought he I, just had a good voice. I don't know. He's
1: he's got he's got some serious pipes. Oh I mean
2: I'm taking that away from him. I just didn't know he was creatively involved. I
1: think he is. I'm don't don't quote me on that. Yeah. All right, let's move on here before uh, we we go really really off a cliff on tangents. So I wanted to give kind of a shout out to to some of the Red Sox successes in the minor leagues too, um, because when you think about the system as a whole, they've had more successes than. Have actually made it to the field. Like we focused on guys that made it to the field, at least in some degree. But they've also had a bunch of guys that they developed who were highly thought of that they traded to other teams for key pieces. So I wanted to mention Michael I think I Kopech.
2: Have a different take
1: on this then. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I will give it, and then you can uh, you can you can give me your take, um, Michael Kopek uh, traded, obviously, as a big piece of the Chris Sale deal. Logan Allen, who was a big piece of the uh, Craig Kimbrell deal. Anderson Espinosa, straight up for Pomerantz, which I hated at the time, but ended up being a pretty decent deal. And then Jalen Beeks for Nathan Eovaldi. Um, all those, in my eyes, are good outcomes.
2: Oh, I think, think they're good outcomes. My take is that they were traded partially because they're so bad at development pitchers, and everybody except for Beeks was fairly early in their development. So the Red Sox traded them before their Development system could ruin them (laughs) That's not a joke That's deadass I think that's the best use Or has been the best use that they can use Of talented pitchers
1: Well that that is a fair Assumption based on the fact that None of those guys I believe Were actually signed or drafted By Dombrowski Correct? Uh, no Right so, Dombrowski's the one who traded all of them.
2: Well, was Logan Allen? No. I don't
1: think okay. so. I think he was a Charrington guy.
2: He got... Oh, man. did he, he got traded right after he was drafted, but I think that was the draft. Yeah, Dombrowski came on like two months after that draft. Because Logan yeah. Allen was one of the first players I think traded.
1: Like, and right Logan there. Allen was also the fourth piece in the deal. He was, like, the last piece that completed the Kimbrel deal.
2: Yeah, I've never really liked the narrative around that. But... People have Meaning, always that, made meaning that, that
1: they didn't have to include him?
2: Yeah, I've never agreed with
1: that. I don't know. I think that there's some merit to the fact that, like, if he was if he held firm and he was like, hell no, you can't have Alan, but you can have one of these, like, 15 guys, I think they probably still get it done, but I think that there's... Not a lot that. Well,
2: the issue that people raised at the time was that they just didn't mean to throw in another prospect at all.
1: Yeah, I, I think maybe, maybe they did, but not him.
2: I think yeah. Well, I mean, I think Logan Allen has turned into more than he was supposed to be. But I guess my thing with that was always, I don't mind because Logan Allen at that time was not that highly regarded as a prospect. He was like solid, but he wasn't like a top prospect or anything. People no, he's a stuff more more guy. About another name being added in. And I was fine with throwing in another prospect to just get it done. I think people underrate, in my opinion, underrate the value of getting it done rather than sitting and waiting and holding oh, it. Oh, I agree. And I think that's what Domborowski was kind of all about that. And it was a very very clear personality trait of Domborowski was, we're going to get this done today.
1: Well, I was maddeningly frustrated with Charrington during his time here and his it, inability yeah, to do that.
2: It was like the polar opposites.
1: Yeah, there's th- that's why we say like Theo is kind of the perfect mix because Theo yeah. was sort of dead center in terms of that, and I hope that we'll see that with Bloom too. I kind of I kind of get more of a Theo vibe from Bloom than I do being like the other two. So hopefully,
2: I think uh, I don't know. I don't know if you can compare anybody to Theo just because Red Sox Theo at least. Because it's such, baseball is so different now, the way transactions work.
1: Yeah. That's true. Very different landscape. Uh, was there anybody that I missed out on? Big name pitchers who were traded for big pieces? I couldn't think of any off the top of my brain other than those four. I'm
2: sure there's somebody else. <laughs> I can't think of yeah. one. I'm sure there was. Uh, Casey Kelly? Casey Kelly.
1: Casey Kelly, yep. Yeah. He was those part of the Aegon deal right yep yep traded him at the right time and who was that uh, reliever who I'm thinking of for the um, St. John's he was he went to St. John's Hanson yeah Craig Hanson didn't they move him for someone too
2: was he fired I think he was part of the Melanson deal
1: Mark Melanson Mark Melanson for Craig Hanson
2: no well wasn't it uh, because Hanson was a while ago He went to Pittsburgh.
1: Oh, was he part of the Arroyo deal?
2: He was part of the Jason Bay trade.
1: Oh, okay. That makes sense. That was several years after Arroyo.
2: Yeah, that was 2008. That was when they traded Manny.
1: Right, and Arroyo actually came to us from the Reds. He was developed by Pittsburgh. I always forget that. Arroyo? Yeah. Arroyo Arroyo was a Pittsburgh draft pick.
2: I knew that. I don't think he came from the Reds, though.
1: Pretty sure he did. He went to the Reds after. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of.
2: I saw um, myself and Mark Normand and saw Bronson Arroyo play Wonderwall at the halftime of a Red Claws game one time. (laughs) We had no idea that he was going to be there.
1: That's kind of cool.
2: It was so weird. We were standing (laughs) in line for beer and all of a sudden it's like, is that Bronson Arroyo?
1: Did you Could you recognize him by his voice, or were they just announcing that it was Bronson?
2: Oh, he just looked over and saw him at the middle of the court. The Red Claws <laughs> okay. basically played a high school gym. Yeah. So it's like yeah. he, it was just he was basically right next
1: to me. I've walked past it on the way to Hadlock, but I've never been inside.
2: It's, it's nothing special.
1: All right, let's get to our listener questions here. We have um, our first one from Mark, uh, whose Twitter handle is at mystifiedbeef19. He says, who's the number one pitcher if we even have a season?
2: Eduardo Rodriguez.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, this is, not... uh, yeah, definitely E-Rod, because no sale. Brothers Judd has the second question. He says, assume a season of some kind. I don't. Um, why don't the Sox sign Puig? Cheap, both to entertain us down in a down season, and because you may be able to trade him.
2: Uh, so in, like, January... I suggested this in the event that the Red Sox traded bets and didn't get an outfielder back, um, but obviously that didn't happen. They kind of have a full outfield already. Plus, Kevin Pillar is already on the bench. So yeah, I love Puig. I would love to have the Red Sox sign him, but I it just doesn't fit. I also don't know if there are going to be trades this year. This has been something I've been thinking about. If they do that, which I don't think it's going to happen. But if they ever did that Arizona-Florida split thing, um, they wouldn't. Be allowed to trade, or at least we'll be allowed to trade like cross leagues. So I don't know.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I don't know what's gonna happen with that. The transaction freeze is obviously on now. I've been against Puig the whole time. I don't like Puig, and I think the Red Sox have four outfielders I'd rather watch than Puig.
2: Yeah, right I, when I yeah, when I suggested him it was in the event they didn't get like a Verdugo type back for bets and they needed yeah. an outfielder.
1: Alright, so last question comes from Kevin Bolton. He says, Did you guys rewatch the 2004 ALCS Game 4 on FS1 last night? And if so, what kind of nostalgia did it bring you? Did you watch it?
2: I don't rewatch old games.
1: Yeah, I didn't watch it either. Um, I typically don't rewatch old games, I will from time to time, but no, I didn't watch it. Um, I think more than 2004. Um, ALCS game 4 I typically my biggest ALCS moment is 0-4 uh, uh, game 5 um, the Ortiz single off Esteban Luisa, um and I think the 10th or 11th inning I'm blanking right now which inning it was but that's the play that I typically think about when I think about the 0-4 ALCS oh, I, don't I definitely think
2: of game 4 for sure but I don't, yeah, I don't really enjoy watching old games.
1: Yeah, for me, it's just like, I couldn't believe Poppy did it twice. You no, know?
2: Okay. I mean, obviously, for sure. It's... You know, the whole thing was something else.
1: Um, all right, so next question, he says, what was the uh, game, What was that the game beginning of The Legend of Big Poppy? If not, where do you think it started? No, do you think was- that's the start, or do you think... 2003.
2: It was some point in 2003. I can't pinpoint an exact moment off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, I want to say that there I it was... it depends
2: what you mean by the legend of Big poppy I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean... Right, I mean, so like... That on a different
2: pedestal, but he was already like... Like, it wasn't like totally out of nowhere. It wasn't like Dan Johnson for the Rays in 2011. Like, it was... David Ortiz is a huge part of that team already.
1: Yeah, I should have prepared for this question a little bit better, but I I'm just using stri- strictly from memory. I believe that it was like June of 2003. He had a game-winning home run, and I think it was Angels Stadium. I they believe just it was. replayed
2: a, one. I don't remember what it was, but they did replay a walk-off because they did, just had a David Ortiz week on Nesson and there was some David Ortiz walk-off from 2003. I don't remember.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was in Angel Stadium. If I remember correctly, it was a West Coast road trip. In Angel Stadium, and David Ortiz had a walk off to win the game, and it pretty much like solidified that from that point forward, it was the David Ortiz show for the remainder of the year in the DH spot.
2: Yeah, that sounds right. very my memory that was a long time ago. I was like 12 so I have specific memories, but I like I said I, Ortiz was still was already Ortiz by that point 2004
1: Yeah, totally. Um, definitely added to the legend though all right final question from kevin he says quarantine question which three bands slash artists do you want to see perform at fenway give me an opener second opener and main headliner for for your bands so first of all let me just say i've seen a few concerts at fenway i don't actually like it as a music venue at all because acoustically i think it's Kind of crappy, and I don't really like where the seats are. Um, I'm never, I'm never feeling like I'm looking at the stage. Maybe I always have crappy seats when I go. Um, but I don't know what is. What is your thought about Fenway as a concert venue?
2: I've never been to a concert. At Fenway I don't really go to a ton of concerts overall. Um, if I'm seeing live music, I'd rather. I'm not really big on like huge crowds. So mm-hmm. I don't really Generally, I go to like just a bar, and somebody will happen to be playing like guitar or something there. It's generally yeah. mine, but I guess I would go, and I don't know. Uh, I'm assuming it can't be done. So,
1: yeah, I went uh, with live bands.
2: Yeah, so I guess I would. I'll start with a band that I already even really listen to that much anymore but i saw taking back sunday like way back in the day when i was in high school and that was a pretty good show so just go back to my roots a little bit there and then um a couple of bands slash just acts i don't know if they're really bands but um a band called first aid kit and a single singer songwriter named taylor jansen they are not they would never perform at fenway they're like folk singers Go see them
1: wherever they were playing. I guess. Nice. I uh, also saw Taking Back Sunday in the day. They were very good. Where'd you see it? Uh, well, I saw them in Boston actually.
2: I was seeing fair at the same concert. We they uh,
1: they played a free show in Boston when I was in college, and um, I don't remember what it was for, but it was, but it was pretty sweet.
2: That I saw.
1: Yeah. So were you, you were in, you said you were in high school.
2: 2007 2008
1: somewhere around that time. yeah no that would have been i think it was 07 when i saw him, so that, that sounds right for me um i would see i would like it to be two bands i've seen one that is on my list that i'm like kind of pissed i still haven't seen yet um i would open with the pixies because i think that they are really good live i would go with weezer second um i've seen them among the most i've seen bands and i tend to like Listen, re, Re-listen re to Weezer more than almost any band um, And then my headliner Who I regrettably have not seen yet Is Rancid And I would love to see them uh, I was going to see them last no Two years ago um, In Brockton But then uh, I had a wedding That I had to go to During that weekend So I did not get to go see them Bummer Yeah, oh well you, uh, Someday maybe
2: You missed a question
1: Oh, what did I miss? It
2: says uh, start one, bench one, cut one. Oh. Red Sox, okay. Patriots, Bruins. I hate this question. Hmm.
1: All right, I'll give my, I'll give you mine first. Start the Red Sox, bench the Patriots, cut the Bruins because Jeremy Jacobs is an asshole, and also because the Bruins for me have always been fourth in terms of teams that I have like a really strong allegiance to. I typically root for specific players in the NHL more than I root for teams. And I always have.
2: Yeah, I'm just refusing to answer this question because the Celtics are, not I'm super pissed off about that. Yeah. I
1: don't get why they weren't in this question.
2: <laughs> I but cuz I I don't I watch football and hockey but I don't care that much about it. I'm more of a baseball basketball guy, so. Well, um, little upset. not including the Celtics there. That was from Norman. I'm now I'm mad at him.
1: Well, thank you for the question, Norman. But next time, please include the Celtics. All right. Well, that does it for our show. We do hope you enjoyed it. We went kind of long today, but you know what? I feel like a lot of you guys have some downtime, so maybe that's okay. We hope everybody's well. Um, And if you would like to, please subscribe to the show. We do appreciate that. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, ones that come to mind to me, iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts. Uh, Spotify, we are on all of those things, so please subscribe. Uh, we also like reviews, so if you can give us a five star review, we appreciate that. And you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow Matt at Matt R.Y. You can follow me at, at DevJake. And lastly, you can follow the Over the Monster account at Over the Monster. And thank you very much for being with us today, and we will be with you next time.